0: I think, again, also back to the question about money and financing, I do think that the choice between doing a film with a lower budget, that is uniquely your vision, as opposed to a higher budget film, that's not uh, there's there's really no choice there. Mm-hmm. There really isn't. Yeah, it's there, one, one is a short term gain, but then it's pretty much over. Uh, you've, you've, you've made a, you know, you've decided your path. But if you if you stay strong, true to a vision, and, and it's, it's, the, it's the authentic process of trying to figure something out about the world. It's just gonna to lead to something else.
1: Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Brian Napenberger's on the show today, Brian produced and directed a documentary called Church in the Fourth Estate, which premiered at Sundance this year. The film investigates a sexual abuse scandal involving the Boy Scouts of America and the Mormon Church. But the story goes beyond the abuse scandal and the cover-up by those organizations. It also dives into an attempt by a notorious Idaho billionaire to shut down an abuse survivor's story with intimidation tactics and lawsuits. One of the sexual abuse survivors featured in this documentary, a brave young man named Adam Steed, joined us for the interview talking to adam and brian in park city where the film premiered to a standing ovation made for a compelling conversation i really connected with adam and brian not only because the film was so powerful but because for the last decade i have represented survivors of childhood sexual abuse against institutions who allowed that abuse to take place so adam's story resonated with me in addition to talking about church in the fourth estate we also talked about Napenberger's career and filmography which includes documentaries like The Internet's Own Boy, The Story of Aaron Schwartz, Truth and Power, Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press, and The Legend of Cocaine Island. Knappenberger's most recent documentary, which he alluded to during our interview, but couldn't discuss because it had yet to be released, is The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez, which is now available on Netflix. So let's jump right into my talk with Brian Knappenberger and Adam Steed. Brian Knappenberger, Adam Steed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for having us. Yeah. So, what brings you to Sundance?
0: Uh, this is my this is my fourth time, I think, in Park City here with a film. This film is called Church in the Fourth Estate, the short film in the in the Doc Shorts too category.
1: It's a Church in the Fourth Estate. Yeah. Okay. And tell us the the subject matter of the film and the narrative of the film. I saw it, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah.
0: good. Uh, well, it, it started for me. I was I was really interested in tracking down a kind of press story. You know, I was doing research about billionaires attacking the press. Um, you know, thin-skinned billionaires who couldn't you know, stand a word of criticism and <laughs> <laughs> attacking the press and filing uh, lawsuits and, and trying to silence uh, you know, stories that they didn't like. And I came across, uh, you know, a bunch of stories from my last film. And as part of that research, I started to learn about these series of stories that came out in southern Idaho in the Idaho Falls Post Register, written by uh, the reporter Peter Zuckerman. And he, along with his editor Dean Miller, We're looking into a Boy Scout camp there called Camp Little Lemhi, and uh, I I was just really fascinated with their work, and and in particular, the backlash um, that they experienced with the community. Some people within the community loved the stories, uh, thought that they were really doing a public good uh, in exposing what was going on at this Boy Scout camp, which was child abuse, child sex abuse. Others thought this was a subject that didn't need to be aired in public or, or you know, that they were being unfair and they pushed back on the story. So I was really kind of curious about that. So I was both interested. And and by the way, the richest person in Idaho, a man named Fra- Frank uh, Vandersloot, who owns a company called Melaleuca, he uh, was one of the critics, staunch critics of these series. And he went so far as to take out full page ads In the local paper in the Uh, idaho falls post register
1: against the journalists against
0: the journalists really questioning going after the veracity of the stories really questioning the veracity and so
2: that was interesting to me too so um can i just interrupt absolutely adam when i tell the sexual abuse story that happened to me and the journalist writes exactly what i told him and frank attacks the story and says it's propaganda how do you think that makes me feel right
1: yeah. Well, it's what it is. In my opinion, it is a, an attack on the truth and and that's what I've seen. I mean, that's what we're seeing culturally right yeah. now is that we're, we're in a post-truth era where we're kind of un, we're unmoored a little bit from what, what is, you know, now that the, the media has been attacked so effectively by the right wing media and and the right wing uh, politicians. So you, what would happen with you, Adam, in my opinion, not to take over the, <laughs> the discussion here, but I did really enjoy the documentary and, and I have a point of view on this, but what happened with you is you were talking to a real journalist, someone who was checking their sources and was reporting facts. What is being reported to him? He's putting it in the newspaper. And as a result, when the newspaper is attacked, you're attacked. Yeah. The, the truth
2: teller is attacked. Well, and don't you think like when victims of sexual abuse are told that they're crazy, that's kind of a line people don't even say that, but that's kind of a thing that perpetrators do to victims of sexual abuse. If to stop them from talking from, to, you know what I right. mean? It's a real sensitive area. And there's a lot, we, we joke around, we call it the craziness that we feel that's on us. It's a way, it's like something we carry around until our truth has been told.
1: Well, it, it, and I, I refer to it as gaslighting too. And that's not a term that I even really knew about until the 2016 election. And, and that's, I think what Vander Sluut was starting to do with, and, and he's taken a page out of the the right wing playbook, which is attack truth tellers. If the truth hurts your cause and here it was hurting the boy Scouts in the Mormon
0: church. I think that's yeah. true. Um, this is, you know, this goes down, this series of stories goes down before, you know, fake news becomes a big thing. Right. Um, but, but I think there is the origins of this, um, right away. I mean, you, I think we've, some of the origins of this go back to the eighties, uh, or, or even sooner, um, probably even sooner, but, you know, yeah. I mean, look, he's questioning this, this, he's making a choice here and he's, and he's protecting, the institutions that um that failed here uh, as opposed to the vulnerable people the vulnerable kids that were part of this organization but um he's doing it in all the ways that kind of rings true for you know in 2016 and on in our modern moment i mean he's saying is this is this uh you know propaganda or is this journalism right and and he's questioning he's just he's just he believes that they were coming from a certain position that was, that was being unfair to the, to the people in the positions of power.
1: And this kind of ties into your, your documentary on the Gawker lawsuit as well, which is the attack on free speech. If that's, if it's speech that doesn't fit within your personal narrative, you attack it and you use money to do it. And here Adam was the victim of that on the receiving end of that type of of tactic. But before, maybe before we get too far into this discussion, if we could back up a little bit and um, Adam, if you could introduce yourself to my listeners and explain what your role
2: in the the film is. Oh, okay. I I don't know who your listeners are, but hello. Yeah. (laughs) I'm Adam. Uh, So uh, obviously it's very uncomfortable to uh, tell a graphic Detailed explanation of sexual abuse that happened to you,
1: and we're not asking you to do and that. I, now, so, yeah, I know. And yeah. that, so
2: watch the film because okay. I'm not going to tell it here. But I yeah, to, I, I told my story, and I, and I met Brian. Um, part of my story, I just couldn't tell because I couldn't work out the problem of my church that I loved was largely responsible for repressing and hiding the sexual abuse so if i told a true story i'd criticize the church and i wasn't allowed to do that and actually it's funny because a, a kind of a prominent member in the church who stands up for victims of sexual abuse was elizabeth smart and she was irate about victim shaming and i guess this gaslighting and stuff and you could see it in her eyes when she talked and the topic came up and and she sat across the table for me uh, she even put her hand on mine looked me in the eyes when i told her i was a victim of sexual abuse she said no guys ever come forward you're the only one that i know." and you need to tell your story. I, I don't know if she not understands the entirety of what my story was, but she gave me such an encouragement. And I, so I started to feel like, okay, I'm going to tell my story Then i tell the truth and let the consequences follow. In fact, that's the word. That's the words out of one of our songs in church is tell the do what is right. Let the consequence follow. You know, I stuck to that and, and I told my story. I kind of started to warm up to talk about it a little bit. And and I made a few posts and and Dean Miller, who reads my post, saw that maybe now's the time for adam to tell the story that's been he could he knows a lot about my life and he could see some of the struggles of not being able to tell and see the thing is and i always say this when a victim doesn't see justice there's a certain amount of craziness created from sexual abuse crime and it stays on the head of the victim until the perpetrator gets punished and then it goes it's like a teeter-totter it leaves the victim and the perpetrator gets punished and suddenly the victim feels normal again yeah. yeah and i think there was some element of that in this area and this craziness and with the church and stuff and I, I think it that just the timing lined up where i was starting to feel like for the first time that i need to do this because i'm always going to feel a little bit crazy and, and the problem yeah until this is talked about and and then i, got well, I,
0: I was it. making a film about the press right a short film about the press and about the attack on these this short, this, you know, this series called the sick outs honor series. And, uh, that the, that the paper was publishing and, um, it was good. It was interesting, but I, you know, I wanted to sort of dig deeper and that's actually where I reached out to Adam. And as soon as I sort of heard his story, uh, I just thought, no, he's center stage on this film and I wanted to tell his experience and use that, you know, as a sort of basis for the film.
1: Yeah. And, And that relationship started when, uh, what year?
0: Um, when I reached out to Adam, yeah, about a year ago, um, I reached out to Adam, but I had been making this sort of short film even before that. And so when I, when I finally found out, I mean, you know, I remember we talked a little bit and then he came by and we, and we sat down and did an interview and I knew just a couple minutes into the interview that I, that I, this was a very different film than I was making before. And that, um, and that, that I wanted to tell his story and his, I mean, just the, the, the courage with which he yeah. came forward and the kind of, uh, candor that he had with these very difficult, um, experiences that he went through, uh, it was just so moving that I thought that's, this is what I want to make the film about.
1: Yeah. Well, Adam, did you feel a, a sense of validation as you talked to more people who were actually on your side?
2: Yeah. So leading up to him inviting me, I did not want to do it. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this really quick and get it over with. Cause there's like a wall against exposing yourself in this way to talk about this kind of stuff. There's just really difficult to do, but on the other side of that wall, you know, I'll never forget the moment where we were at a certain point of that interview. And I looked at the clock or I, at the time, and I just thought we're still here, still talking about this. These people aren't running away. <laughs> They're not scared of me, right? And I feel really good. And what I'm talking about, you know, I feel really good. I'm and I'm just telling the truth. And I feel really good. And yeah, I mean that moment, like for my self-esteem, and for me, and for validation. Yeah, I, it was priceless.
1: Yeah. Okay. So so a year ago, you meet Adam, and and you're you're working on this short on journalism was Vandersloot on your radar at that point
0: Brian Yes absolutely I was I was trying because what happened was Vandersloot not only had attacked these uh, this series of stories in this very dramatic way you know taking out full page ads numerous full page ads questioning the truth of the stories uh, later Mother Jones magazine had reported on Mr Vandersloot because he had become uh, the campaign, like a finance manager of the Mitt Romney campaign. So they looked into donations from Melaleuca to Mitt Romney and were reporting on that kind of campaign finance stories, which is part of what they do really, really well. And they mentioned this series of stories that had happened in Idaho Falls. So they mentioned the Scouts Honor Series. And they did it in a way that caused uh, Mr. Vandersloot to then go after Mother Jones magazine and try to to sue them for defamation. And that
1: was talked about in your film as well. And
0: that's talked about in the film as well. So yeah. and that was very dramatic for Mother Jones magazine. I believe it cost them an upwards of 2 million dollars to fight those lawsuits.
1: Right. And this is not a, a, a multi-billion dollar corporation.
0: No, it's not. Yeah. No. So and ultimately they won, but you know, sometimes that doesn't necessarily matter when it costs you that much money and maybe that's not even the intent. Maybe yeah. the intent is to really kind of harass Uh, the publication and to Mm -hmm. stop people from talking critically about you in the future.
1: Right. So when you, when you meet Adam and this, this film narrative, does it start to, to gel at that point right when you meet him in terms of
0: where it's going? Well, it's a human face of this. Yeah. And, and I understood that that's, that was going to be center. And, um, you know, you, you learn a lot from talking to Adam and the way he's dealt with this and gone through this. Um, and to see all of this through his eyes was was pretty powerful. And, and by the way, we learned a lot in the last year um, that, that Adam and Peter and Dean Miller just didn't know at the time, and that is the extent of the abuse in the Boy Scouts. They were arguing whether or not this was happening. And a lot of this debate was whether or not this was happening at this one camp, Camp Little Lemhi, mm-hmm. in this one part of the world, Southern Idaho. And whether or not that was happening or not was part of this whole debate. Well, as it turns out, we've as a result of uh, lawsuits there's been the release of all of these uh what the boy scouts call the ineligible volunteer files
1: the perversion files or otherwise yeah. known yeah
0: <laughs> what they refer to them as the perversion it, it, files within right the, within the boy scouts organization they yeah. call them the perversion files
1: it's it's cra- it's stranger than fiction yeah this stuff and uh, i'm i'm looking at this film and it's a very succinct concise narrative and I'm struck because my, you know, my background is I'm a trial lawyer and I represent sexual abuse survivors. Wow. But my, wow. yeah. And, and I've been doing that for the past decade. You and kind I, of
0: buried the lead here. Well, yeah, wow! <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned that
1: to the publicist, but I, I wasn't sure what was going to make make it to you. But,
2: no, it's our honor. Um, yeah. So, I totally respect what you do.
1: Well, thank you. And, and I have immense respect for every abuse survivor that comes forward and tells their story uh, because I know. I am a hundred percent confident that it it is a fraction. The people that come forward are a fraction yeah. of the true victim pool out there that, that just, they can't do it. They well, can't come forward.
0: And this is why I think Adam's story resonated so much with me. I mean, this, this, you know, the, the phrase that comes to mind is courage is contagious. Yeah. Uh, and the, the courage that he had to, to go against the, basically the power structure of Southern Idaho and then to come forward and talk to me about it on camera, is it just, it's really inspiring. And, and not a lot of people are, have that strength.
1: Yeah, and another thing that really um, jumped out at me in the film is the fact that, Adam, you, you did what most abuse survivors do not do, is you told somebody. And, and they didn't do anything about it. Most of my clients, the first person they've told about their abuse is me or maybe their spouse right before they called me. And, um, and that, and I've represented hundreds uh, across the nation, hundreds of abuse survivors. So you are a unique, your, your story is unique and you are unique because you had the courage way back when it happened to know that this wasn't right. And not only wasn't it right, but it needed to be uh, reported. And then that's when the betrayal occurred. And it and it occurred at the the Boy Scout level and the in the Mormon Church level, unfortunately. Um, so I noticed that there was no litigation discussed. Were were you part of any litigation?
2: Uh, yeah. I- so against I, so originally I was offered a chance to sue scouting for what had happened, and I turned it down. Uh, that was at the time that you know Brad was apprehended, and you know I was like 15, 16, 17. and actually. I turned it down because, you know, I didn't want to attack my church. I didn't want to attack scouting. But when I came back from my mission and my dad called me and he said, there's this reporter, Peter Zuckerman, who wanted to talk to you. And I told him to go, that you'd been through enough trauma, go talk to the other 24 victims on the list that, you know, Brad Stoltz had admitted to sexually abusing 24 victims and others whose names he couldn't remember, that, that list. That reporter went to the went to look for that list in the courthouse. Well, he, yeah, he said what list? What, what list? Yeah. What other 24. There's he had no there's no and it was a missing file. And then eventually that blew up and we found out that one of the kids on the list was the son of a bishop in Blackfoot, Idaho. He had just committed suicide. That he was uh that he, that he left a note that he was sexually abused and that nobody believed him. And that suddenly I realized all of, a lot of these other kids on that list who I knew, who I went to school with, that I thought that I'd helped them by turning this in and they had gotten help. And none of them were helped. None of them were contacted. It was all hid. And then I realized I'm, a, I'm adult now. I'm not gonna get abused again. I'm gonna stand up for these kids. And I did everything in the church community teaches you not to sue. And I looked at it, I said, I'm gonna sue Boy Scouts of America because i want those people's jobs i want them gone and i want the truth to come out and so i, I was uh, just barely starting a semester in byu i was a returned missionary I, want, I was dating i was gonna get married in the temple with this girl and that all fell apart her family heard about scouting she didn't want anything to do with me i was off on my own at that point but i knew behind all that fog i knew there were children out there adults kids whatever they were out there and they were suffering And that when kids go, when they get sexually abused, they go into like closure. And if they don't get help and they feel crazy, I was was like, no, this isn't going to happen. So I'm going to sue Boy Scouts of America. And out of the blue, I sued them. And I barely caught the statute of limitations by like three days or something.
1: Idaho has a tough one.
2: There was a five-year statute put together by scouting people and the church people protecting it saying. Lobbying the legislature. We don't want to hurt. And I ended up lobbying the legislator and got it removed.
1: Well done. Well done. That's a whole nother story in it itself. Is. Probably I know it is. Yeah. A lot it's of amazing. layers to this thing. Yeah.
0: Adam and his dad had that, had that law removed. We we're instrumental in that. So,
1: um, how's Peter doing now? The, the, the journalist.
0: Yeah. I mean, he left, um, I think it's safe to say under duress. I mean, he didn't, he was no longer comfortable in Idaho falls and he's, he's, uh, he, I think he splits his time between DC and, um, Portland, Oregon, and he's a writer.
1: Yeah. Uh Peter just for listeners who haven't seen the film yet, Peter was a kind of a, a hero figure in the in the story because he reported on the truth and was uh, was harassed and attacked by a billionaire.
0: Yeah. Um It's worth noting Uh, he ultimately, um, a year later, something won the Langston Award for for journalism for those stories, which is, I think, one of the most prominent all media journalism
2: awards. He has the Scripps Award and the Livingston Award. So he was. I didn't uh, know what they were, but I looked them up. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, it was a big deal. And they, and, you know, so ultimately he got some recognition for this work.
1: So, Brian, tell us about your, um, how you found documentary filmmaking Mm. as your chosen form of storytelling.
0: That's interesting. I've always been on a kind of dual path between journalism and photography. You know, I got I, I, uh, you know was a still photographer for a long time. I uh, was a commercial still photographer for a while, and um, and I basically just started getting into uh, filmmaking, crafting stories with images and music and and uh, people's stories. And um, as I was kind of working as a photographer, I would just or a, a cinematographer, a director of photography. I just started interviewing people and, and going down that path and, and uh, it just became, it's hard to say, my first film was I think in 98, 99. It was about technology entering the human body and changing who we are as a species hmm. and uh, robots becoming more sentient.
1: Pretty ambitious project. <laughs> <It's>, yeah,
0: <laughs> pretty pretty prescient still, even 20, <laughs> 20 years later. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of my work has had to do with technology and how's it sh- how it's changing and shifting. I feel like that's a really big uh thing the the how it brushes up against civil liberties and um human rights and freedom of speech and 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 that sort of thing
1: and and is that how you got involved in the uh internet's own boy the story of adam Swartz? aaron Swartz. yeah um yeah
0: yeah. so i've done a number of films about technology and sort of the fringe groups performing in technology and communities online and and uh so at my previous film before that one uh we are legion the story of the hacktivists was in a period of uh of hacktivism or digital activism um uh, online one of the most press you know biggest periods of protests we've seen recently you know is the, the occupy movement was around that time um that that year is unprecedented period of hacking activity. Mm -hmm. Um, But hacking for good. Some for good, some for not. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, A little, little gray area sometimes, but, but mostly uh, using computer systems in, in ways that uh, were meant to, um, to, to protest or to uh, organize uh, protests, that sort of thing. And, you know, Aaron's Aaron Swartz was a luminary figure in, in that world. Um, He really um, still remains one of the, few figures that I think was really both understood the technology and understood the internet really well and understood how to craft and create he understood the infrastructure he helped build RSS and things like that and he also had a very strong and uh, developed sense of civic duty so he he had both he's one of the few people that I I knew who had both of those things right He, he really understood the technology and understood the basic sense of uh, information being public information, being free to the public and, you know, just a basic sense of public good and civic decency. And uh, and it's a rare combination there. So it was a tragic loss. Was that your first documentary that made it into the mainstream? Uh, Yes, I think so. I mean, we are Legion. The story of the hacktivists was, you know, it was picked up and people saw it, but it was also hacked early on and has been, pirated it was one of the most pirated films of the year that year
1: wasn't well, that ironic
0: yeah <laughs> i don't know how that <laughs> happened exactly um yeah, you never would have guessed yeah uh but no we, we are legion is i mean i still have you know i mean just just that that film is still seen by lots of people around the world but uh from in a main, in a mainstream sense yes uh internet's own boy as you may have noticed there are great resources and advice mentioned
1: in all our episodes and for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. And what, what, is, what are the logistics involved for someone who wants to make a documentary in terms of finding funding? To help you shoot it, um, but also to get the word out and to promote it. What is the sequence of events in terms of you know you have an idea, mm-hmm. you've got some equipment, mm-hmm. uh, you have the technological skill. Okay, so let's start with that. Yeah. But then what happens next?
0: Well, <laughs> that's a good question. The uh, and I guess the short answer is it's never happens the same way twice. I, you know, for me, I think one of the one of the one of the places that I start with is that, and coming from a kind of photographic background or a cinematography background, I've always had cameras around me. I've always liked have cameras. I've always been able to pick up a camera almost at a drop of a hat. Um, but usually it starts with just, you know, getting pissed off about something or just being really angry about something or just really being moved about something and, and picking up a camera and starting to talk to people. From there, you know, I, I've always been a fan and. It, different people do this different ways. I mean, I I've been a fan of starting to cut something together, starting to kind of put together something even before you have funding, uh, just to get your own sense of what the film's about, just to understand. I mean, I think you, I think you, I'm a fan of heavy research process. I'm, I'm a fan of doing a lot of work on paper before you go into editing. That's the journalist um, in you. Yes. Yeah, the journalist in me, but I mm. think it also saves a lot of time in editing and cost later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also just, Focuses you a little bit on what the story is that you're telling, so I'll I'll jump right in and start shooting stuff, start getting interviews with people that I find fascinating or compelling, and start cutting stuff. and And I I've found that when if you do it that way, as opposed to trying to pre sell it or trying to raise money first or something, uh, there's just a sense of you just know the story better. Mm-hmm. You know you know how to talk about the story. You know what you want from the story, and there's a sense of momentum that it starts to build. And so I. Yeah. I guess that's my answer to the question. There's never really a, a logical step by step. I mean, there's, there's yeah. elements there, but you're, you're maneuvering in order to position yourself for them. Yeah,
1: and it sounds like once you have the idea and you just want to start shooting, that sounds like a very organic process to me. Yeah. And if you were to have funding too early, then it almost seems like that would complicate things because then you've got, if people are saying, Hey, here's some money, there's always you know, some type of condition
0: Tied to that money, right? Exactly. Which brings you to the like really the most critical part of it. And that is to fight for your own free expression and free and and for your own freedom of your own voice. Um, that's it. That's more important than the money. Um, maintaining that early on throughout is so key because, and, and ultimately that gets you funded by, <laughs> ultimately the money comes if you go that path too. Right. So, no, I, I really think, I mean, tell the, tell the story that you want to tell and understand the story that understand what that story is and fight for it and go for it. And, um, if, if people understand that, see that vision, then they'll get on board with it. But I'm a, I'm a much bigger fan of doing it that way than, than earning lots of money or, or, um, getting lots of early funding. And then you you want the, the ability to shift gears a little bit too. I mean, that happened in this story. Uh, you know, you're thinking of it as a press story and then you're kind of this, sense of the you know all these lawsuits come out about the boy scouts this release of all these ineligible volunteer files you you want some freedom to kind of move with it a little bit
1: well i think those are always the best documentaries where they start thinking that it's one thing and then it's not and it takes a crazy turn it happens a lot yeah and and that kind of leads me to my next question which is what do you think about the state of documentaries right now because When I look at my Netflix queue, Mm -hmm. I would say about a third of them, at least, are are
0: documentaries. It's a wonderful time. Um, uh, The joke I usually say is that if, you know what, I've been doing this 20 years or more, and um, what I do now is called uh, premium content. What it used to be called is I'm broke. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there used to be no money for this. Uh, That's not to say there wasn't a thriving place for documentaries. I worked for PBS for a while, uh, which was great. PBS frontline. Um, there were other outlets, but it wasn't, uh, you know, the the last few years we've seen, you know, the streaming services mostly really take documentaries seriously. As a result, audiences have responded to that. There's never been a doubt in my mind that there was an interest in an audience. Uh, that's been clear Mm -hmm. for 20 years to me, but to see a commercial or, or people starting to understand that in a commercial sense, it, it took a long time, but it's great. So when you put a
1: project together like Church in the Fourth Estate, uh, yeah. and you make your way to Sundance, when you arrive to Sundance, I assume that you don't have a deal, or typically you
0: you would not have a deal in place for distribution at that point. Uh, that's true. Um, that well, that's true with this film, and true with my last film as well. Uh, it's not necessarily true with a lot of fil- a lot of films are that our Sundance are already purchased. Yeah. Um, so that's not definitely not true across the board. I think with Netflix and Amazon, that's starting to, they're jockeying before you get here. So it's not yeah. quite the same. Um, there's a handful of films here that, that weren't, didn't have distribution in, or that the filmmakers decided not to have distribution until they got to Sundance. Yeah. Um, I kind of prefer that a little bit. I like the kind of the, um, the independent aspect of it. Uh, you know, and keep that going as much as possible. Yeah.
1: But. Well, I think it adds to the mystique too when you're in the audience and you're at Sundance and you're yeah. like, is this gonna be picked up? Is anybody else gonna see this? Yeah. And it's possible that it will not be seen by anybody else. It's true. Or it'd be very difficult to see. Of course, if you go to the Eccles and, you know, Anne Hathaway shows up.
0: Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna appear somewhere. It's in a the, pretty sure thing at that media. point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably. <laughs>
1: yeah. So uh, do you find yourself, like, in terms of what you're looking forward to in, in 2020 and 2021, the mm-hmm. projects that you're working on, is it still documentary filmmaking for you?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm finishing up a six-part series we did for Netflix, one story over six episodes that's going to come out in a month. And then we're starting a new series that is a very um, – it's kind of on – it's an anthology series, doc, doc series, but we're, we're jumping into things that I get, you would – be closer to a kind of narrative approach i'd say recreations although that word's not perfect but it's you know going into scenes and stuff based on it's it's based on i can't say much about it but it's a it's based on disinformation online and Mm. and deception and so we're actually playing it out in ways that that are a little more like a narrative film would be illustrated yeah i guess
1: and uh and you can't talk about the six-part series either
0: uh the new one, oh man it's the Netflix so one. i've been i've been keeping it to myself for like two years uh <laughs> and i wish i could and it's so close i mean it's about a crime pretty horrific crime that happened in uh, i'm i'm not supposed to but it but a, a crime that happened in in los angeles north of los angeles okay and we are in the courtroom uh with the por- perpetrators but it there were some pretty serious kind of failures of the power structure in Los Angeles. And some of the people in county government and other things have uh, other places are also been charged criminally so that we're following those trials as well.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's go back to church in the the fourth estate. What kind of um, response Adam have you received from people who have seen the film or have heard about the film uh, in your community?
2: So, um, well, my community isn't always the, park city sundance community (laughs) understood uh and and we just saw the premiere uh two days ago but and i can't really relate to you know from a professional what 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 you usually see but i had a standing ovation and i was got to stand in front of these people and they were crying and i got hugged by so many people Hmm. and it was you know so like for me right fresh in my mind is how absolutely terrified I was to be there doing that and then how extremely beautiful it was Mm. to see these people
1: and in terms of your in terms of your family and friends um, I I caught a little bit of a sense of that from the film. Yeah. Uh, and, but what has been the response from your family and friends in uh, terms of your involvement in this project? You
2: know, I, I kind of was quiet about it. I think I would have been more, Hey guys, look what I'm doing, but it's sexual abuse and it's kind of hard to be like, you know, I don't, yeah. I'd rather just let them know after. So I put up a fake Facebook post, but you know, I, I, I did this film about some pain in my life. People were, but I, I, you know, hundreds of people, uh, I, I, I've had uh, support from all members of the church and not members alike that unanimously feel that what I'm doing is incredibly important.
1: And if I remember correctly from the film, you you stayed in the church. Is that right? Because there are aspects of the church that you still found helpful and, and um, an important part of your faith?
2: As you could assume because of what's happened to me that I, I have a difficult time in a church setting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't really know where I am, but I do feel closer to God in my life and closer to everybody and closer to truth than I've ever felt. I do feel a lot more solid than I've felt. And a lot's happened. Uh, just since the first interview with Brian last, that was just this last year. That I think has been uh, helping solidify me as a person and really ground me and help me find my my own sense of self. Uh, you know, I've told this this horrible elephant in the room story, and now I'm starting to feel like this year was the first year in nine years since I had a divorce that I got a girlfriend and that you know and that we spent six months together. She she was. Um, tragically hit by a car and she died. And it was a tragedy that happened while this film was going on. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But so it's been a really mixed year for me. Uh, but I, you know, like I had all this confidence and things were going really good. And then I had this cause life had, life has some tragedies sometimes that we don't expect, but, um, yeah. So, but I, I do feel more, um, comfortable in my own skin than I felt. And, and, and I know she, she really wanted this for me, too. She was there coming to the the filmings and stuff, and she knew it was traumatic for me and spent time with me afterwards and encouraging me and everything. So,
1: Well, um, not to shift around too much, but uh, I'd like to bounce back to your beginnings mm-hmm. as, a, as a creative and ask you if you were standing in front of a, a group of high school kids mm-hmm. and they had an interest in this type of storytelling. Yeah what advice would you give them in terms of what to you know what type of education to get what interests to pursue and how to get on that path that you took uh, aspiring
0: filmmakers yeah yeah i mean i think that the the one well it's interesting the education um, i mean i learned a lot you know i did, i learned a lot about photography and and filmmaking um, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't go any really formal education. You know, more of my mind is more, well, some was in photography, but journalism too. But um, I, I don't, I think the thing, you know, the best way to start to create films and to be a filmmaker is to, um, is just to dive in. I guess it goes back to what we were just saying a, a, a little while ago, that um, just to start, uh, you know, understanding what it is, why you, what do you want to say? You know what? What is it? What kinds of stories do you want to tell? What mo- what do you find most relevant in the world? What what parts of the the insane world that we live in right now do you want to document? Do you want to understand? Do you want to sort of step back and say, why is this the way it is? Um, and to um, pick up a camera and start cutting stuff together, and then critically show people. Right? Mm, and scary. It's scary, but let let it wash over you let mm-hmm. it I mean, nobody's gonna not everybody's gonna love it <laughs> um you know a friend of mine, a guy a, a graphics guy i met early on said well you show show people what you work on and then you say well you know is it good or is it bad and it's like well okay if it's, ba- if it's if it's if it's if it's good why is it good you know why well, what is it that you're responding to if it's bad why is it bad mm. is it bad because it's technically bad if that's the truth if that's the case then just do anything it takes to get better at those elements, right? Yeah. You can figure that out. But is it bad because it's weird or different? Well, maybe you're the judge of that, you know, Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker. Maybe you as the artist are the judge of that. So, you know, I think, again, also back to the question about money and financing, I do think that the choice between doing a film with a lower budget that is uniquely your vision as opposed to a higher budget film that's not... Uh, there's, there's really no choice there. Mm-hmm. There really isn't yeah. that there, one, one is a short term gain, but then it's pretty much over. Uh, you've, you've, you've made a, you know, you've decided your path, but if you, if you stay strong true to a vision and, and it's, it's the, it's the authentic process of trying to figure something out about the world, it's just going to lead to something else. You know,
1: it sounds like too, that you really need a community or at least a few other people who are like-minded to kind of help shape you in those years where you're trying to figure out what's good and what's bad, because I don't know that that can happen in a vacuum.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. You meet, you meet people, but I think I would also say to younger people, seek out those people that you, that are most, um, that you're most, uh, sort of inspired by, I guess. Mm
2: -hmm. And,
0: uh, you know, I, I think people are more accessible than you generally, people give them credit for um and i think if you're approaching the the craft honestly i think people other people recognize that um but yeah i I think the showing of people is very very Mm -hmm. critical and i mean it's so important and and to get it out i mean a lot of people are scared of that and then never show anybody their work or they keep playing with their play but i mean i just don't think you i don't think the cycle of improvement works unless you go the whole distance and go back and make another film. Right. And then show it, you know, craft it, create it, make new mistakes, and then uh, show people and keep doing it again.
1: If I was going to summarize your advice to the high school students, it would be do
0: it, do it, just <laughs> I mean, get I mean, out there and start shooting. It's so. hard to make it more complicated than that. Yeah. I mean, I, and don't, don't second guess yourself. Don't think you need an agent or a deal or something. I mean, all that stuff is reacting to your vision. Mm. Your vision and the purpose of what you're doing has to come first.
1: Yeah, and and do you th- do you think that the the issues of figuring out the, how the camera works and lighting mm. are things that you can learn just on the job, getting a you know a job as an assistant on a crew or something like that, as opposed to going to film school and you know vocationally uh, you know, some type of vocational school or, or actual film school like USC. Uh, is that something like on the job that you can learn?
0: Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, I think it is. I mean, it's good to have a little bit of preparation and, it, and, you know, I think there's an instinct for that. If that's something that you love to do, then you're hungrier and you, it's easier now. I think, you know, you can learn technology pretty fairly easily in YouTube and other, and other things. Um, I mean, look, there's some, there's a personal element to it. I mean, my dad, I remember one birthday when I was, I think it was nine years old, my dad gave me. Uh, my first Pentax uh, Pentax screw mount camera, and so it was a proper SLR camera, and you know it, it was my birthday, and they hid different lenses around the room, and and I had to go find, I was a scavenger hunt. I had to go find the camera body and the different lenses, and we were about to go on a on a on a trip, right? We did these long kind of road trips, and we had a Ford Econoline van, and we just like did these loops around the country. We did that was a lot of a mm. lot of the states in America. Good memories. It was, and and we were about to launch on one of these trips when I it was my birthday, and I got this new camera. So, we we're in this black Ford Econoline van, and I was learning all of the lenses and how it worked, and what you know what a wide-angle lens was, and what that did for an image as opposed to a long lens, and the kind of places where you'd want to use with, with each different kind of tool. And, and I remember my dad saying um, uh, that you know, an F-stop, right? I and mean, he said, look, he held his hand uh, up like this with the little kind of, you could see through the little, um, uh, you know, he wrapped his fingers around and he looked, look at a pinhole camera, right? Everything's in focus. So the smaller that hole that F-stop is, the more focus there is. And the wider it is, the less Depth of field he's taught me depth of field hmm. in the back of a ford Econoline. that's a tough concept when i was about eight, yeah. eight nine ten years old but if you think about it, a pinhole camera which i'd already made a mm-hmm. bunch of makes sense i get it and that sticked, stuck with me and i think even even what i've just said gave me a a leg up on the assistants in hollywood yeah it's hard to explain i i mean i understood lenses as well as they did Yeah, because of my first job, your dad's
1: instructions when you were in the van. Yeah. And
0: and what's weird is when does this, you know, that entered my brain when my brain was ready for it at some tender age. And my dad just happened to be into photography. He's not a photographer, but he was super into it at that moment. So there was some convergence there that imprinted itself on me um, after he moved on. Yeah.
1: I would imagine that another skill set that you need as a documentary filmmaker, as opposed to a, you know, a feature film, narrative type of movie, would be a, a real knack for communication, empathy, listening, so that you can develop rapport with, for instance, Adam.
2: Yeah. I was I was going to mention that when you know it's because you guys work with people in film all the time, and you you might get more used to that. In my place, you know, like, as a common person, when you hear someone who wants to make a movie or something's going to talk to you, your brain goes right into, oh, I need to say my most important stuff. I need to say everything perfect. This is pressure because you're you're not used to that. Right. And it it really I think helped Brian's uh, approach to me really helped me because he really low profiled it just acted really kind. He didn't wait for a long time for me to rethink and second guess myself. So it was really like some of our most successful interviews were, oh, you're in town? Hey, you wanna come over really quick? Hey, let's talk really quick. And and that was the, you know, because especially with issues of trauma, you know, when you revisit those over in your head before you go, then your interview is not very that good. What's good is right at that moment where you ask those questions and if somebody brings it up for like and talks about it in their memory and that at that moment it's not you, you can get a traumatized version of trauma or you can hear that hear kind of the story in the beginning mm-hmm. and and so i i appreciate the fact as a as a person in this process that and it's no fun as like a, a victim or you know someone who's through trauma of some sort to give a report of the traumatized version of yourself, (laughs) right? That's not what that's not, that makes you feel like a basket case. And you don't know if the same results going to happen with the reporter that happened in your life when you told that to somebody. And so, yeah, you know, the way that he caught that with real low profile, didn't get wait a long time, heard your story, a lot of validation, a lot of support that you're doing a great job. Um, Very when the trauma stuff comes on, very not controlled. Of, you know, like an agenda that he needs to fulfill with his staff.
1: I was going to say that it, it, that's what I picked up on when I was watching the film is that there didn't seem to be a real strong point of view driving the narrative or an agenda, as you said, Adam, uh, which is, is really refreshing because I think there are some, some documentaries out there that um, they're just out to accomplish something. You know, it, you know, the, the fire festival mm-hmm. was, those were really entertaining documentaries, right. but i don't know that they were that journalistic or i think they were just kind of looking for this you know i mean i'm not trying to diminish the work that they did i enjoyed both of the fire festival yeah i watched them with my kids i yeah, thought they're hilarious but um but i noticed with this film you know a lot of the 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 voice your voice was just the the listening and the empathy and letting Vandersloot i mean let her let, let van hang himself just by, yeah. with his own words. I mean, this is, you don't have to have an agenda <laughs> when you, when you have a story like this, it just kind of gels and really is impactful. And, um, and so I think, you know, the, the standing ovation was, um, very well deserved Adam at, at the premiere. That, uh,
2: that belongs to every victim of sexual abuse in this world to it was like becoming harry potter instead of the guy under the closet right yeah
1: well i and i I wanted to thank you as well on behalf of all of my clients and all of the the folks who uh, probably will never come forward because hearing this type of story in a mainstream uh, format like this is validating to thousands and thousands of abuse survivors Do do you think it can change the world Absolutely. I think it has changed the world already. What you did with the litigation that you filed, what you did with the interviews with Brian sitting here today, showing up at the theater, watching the movie with a bunch of strangers, not knowing what the reaction is going to be. Um, you, you have changed the world. Brian has changed the world. And I think everybody that listens and watches that film, with an open mind is changing the world yeah. because they're changing when they, when they see it.
2: Yeah. You know, pe- people don't believe us and people don't want to hear yeah. to sc- hear about scary topics. They don't.
1: It's, it's very uncomfortable. Uh, we don't want to believe the worst in people and mm-hmm. unless the person who is speaking the truth is going against our own, you know, best interest. And then we believe the worst in that person. Yeah who is speaking that truth. But, um, it, it's, I think we're culturally ready for a shift and, uh, to start believing abuse survivors as our default position, as opposed to, uh, questioning them and their, their motives as the default position. And that's, that's, that's what I'm hopeful place. for. Yeah, yeah. That's a
0: good, good step forward.
1: Yeah. Brian, thank you so much for being on thanks the podcast yeah, and making time for, for me. me. I know you're busy here in, at uh, park city and the Sundance film festival, Adam, uh, thank you for sitting down with us. It was a nice surprise to to see you here and get to know you in person.
2: Thank you for having me on your show.
1: Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the dream path podcast. If so, I have a favorite ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.